invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, actually. We'll be making some references to Genesis 2. We're continuing our series of messages um, on the whole Bible, um, and the pace will pick up eventually. Um, but last week we talked about chapter 1 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Um, and you'll remember in Genesis chapter 1, uh, God creates the world, and then on each step of the way, he says, oh, that's good, that's good, that's good. Um, so creation kind of unfolds, God fills creation, it's good, it's good, it's good. Until finally, at the end of chapter 1, uh, God creates human beings. And after he creates human beings, he doesn't say it's good, right? He says it's very good. Okay, so that's how chapter 1 ends. Things are very good. And then we get to chapter 2. And chapter 2 really tries to, to flesh out, like, what are some of the things that make God's creation very good? Like, specifically, what is so very good about human beings in creation? So chapter 2 is a little less concerned about, like, the sun and the stars and the fish and the birds and things like that. And it's more concerned, like, what is unique about the situation for the man and the woman that makes, what, like, what is it that makes this paradise such a paradise for them? And most of the stuff you see in chapter 2 is not too surprising. So like verse 15, this is a lot like what we had last week. God gives the humans the gift of work. Okay, So he tells the man to work the garden and to take care of it. Um, paradise is paradise because we have purpose in it. Uh, we, there's, there's meaning to our lives. It's not just arbitrary. We have something good to do. And then verses 16 and 17, this is a little bit, I guess this is a little bit stranger, but he gives us boundaries. So he tells us, enjoy most of creation, almost everything. You're going to love it. There's really great stuff here. But he says, stay away from this one tree. He warns them about this one tree. And so we see that paradise is paradise because God doesn't make us guess like what's good and not good. Uh, he just lays it out for us. Right? So God gives these boundaries. And then verse 18, God gives the gift of community. Uh, he gives a helper, the woman. Uh, paradise is paradise because we, we share it with each other. All right, so Genesis 2 is kind of giving us this list of the really good things about God's creation. So you've got the goodness of work, and you have the goodness of, of having purpose, and you have the goodness of knowing your limits, and finally you have the goodness of community, of each other. I think it's a great list. I think those are all great examples of what makes a paradise a paradise for human beings. But then right before the, the chapter ends, right before chapter 2 ends, there is this strange addition. It's, it's like the author wanted to kind of tie up this picture of perfection with one last detail. Like, it's kind of a, an exclamation point to demonstrate, just in case we missed it, just how great things are in paradise. And it's verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Huh. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I think about, like, what makes a paradise a paradise... Being happily naked is not the first thing I think of. Um, like, of all the things that the author could have pointed out, he felt like 
their nakedness was like this critical detail. Like that being naked and having no shame was a worthy like exclamation point on God's very good creation. This is strange, right? But then just as soon as we reach that strange kind of high point in the story, things go downhill fast. Chapter 3. The serpent appears in verse 1. The serpent, you know, there's this this exchange between the serpent and and Eve, and um, he kind of drives this wedge between humanity and God. And he gets them to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They, they, cross, they cross the one boundary God gave them. And we pick it up in verse 7. So this is chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And the man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This is the word of the Lord. Now theologians tend to think of this little section, this chapter 3 of Genesis, in very epic terms. Okay, so... Theologians would not be like, oh, this is just another story in the Bible. Uh, For theologians, this is the story of the fall. You use scare quotes when you do it. The fall, okay? So for theologians, like, this is the moment sin enters the world. Which means this is the origin story of all that's wrong. So, war and disease and poverty and violence, and cancer, and house fires, and mental illness, and like all the things that tear us up as human beings, it starts here. Chapter 3 is really the undoing, the, the unparadising of paradise. And the way it's depicted, it is clearly an epic event. So Adam and Eve's decision to cross that boundary, it ripples out. In verse 16, um, the good community, the marriage between man and woman becomes fraught and tense. Childbirth becomes painful. And then in verse 17, the ground itself, the, the creation itself is distorted. You get thorns and thistles. And then in verse 19, the human task of working the ground and, and caring for it becomes more difficult. Right? You notice these were all the good gifts from chapter 2. All that made paradise paradise is like unraveling. Our relationships our work, the, the, the earth itself. But what's interesting to me this morning is that before the author gets to those epic consequences, he really takes his sweet time explaining a consequence that seems so much less epic. 
He points out again that they're naked, but this time he adds that they're uncomfortable being naked. And again, like of all the consequences of the fall, they keep us up at night, right? I mean, why is there poverty? Why is there racism? Why is there war? Why do children die? And why do tyrants live? Like of all the consequences of the fall that keep us up at night, you want to talk about nakedness? Really? Like of all the epic consequences that we really do worry about, why focus so much energy on a consequence we hadn't given a second thought? Well, let's give it a second thought this morning and see what we can discover. I guess the first question would be like, what, what do we think nakedness represents? And I think probably nakedness represents transparency, vulnerability, right? So uh, when you're naked, we say you are exposed. We say you're not hiding anything. Uh, we say you're letting it all hang out, right? So now here's an important question. What does it take to be comfortable being naked? Probably not the question you expected your pastor to ask this morning. Um, what does it take to be shamelessly naked? Well, I wonder if marriage could be maybe a helpful lens for this. So, for many adults, the only time we are regularly naked around anyone else is if we're married with our spouse, right? And Christians have always said that sex and, and like being naked together, that that should only happen in the context of marriage, right? Now, why? Why is marriage special? Why not, why not just be naked with whomever I feel like being naked with? Well, marriage is special because you make all these promises to each other in a marriage, right? These deep promises, you make these public promises. And I would argue that what those promises, what marriage is meant to create, is a, a, a context for high levels of trust. You see, physical nakedness, physical vulnerability, is always connected to spiritual nakedness and emotional nakedness. Like, it's physical, but it's never just physical. And so to be that exposed, to be that open, Christians have always said you need marriage because marriage is intended to support high levels of trust. And I think that trust is the key ingredient to feel comfortable being naked together. Being both physically but also spiritually, emotionally, just like completely known by someone else requires a huge amount of trust. Right? That the other person won't use that knowledge to hurt you. That they won't use that knowledge to belittle you or to abandon you. And so we say, only be that vulnerable once you've made these deep promises to each other. So by the way, this relates to something we talked about last week in chapter 1. Um, how if you have the right boundaries, um, you can actually create the context where, where life can flourish. I think this is an example of that, right? So with the promises of marriage made, with, with the boundaries carefully set, it's now safe, it's good to be that vulnerable, to let yourself be like completely known, to be naked. But now, if you have a married couple that's never naked together, right, where the, the spouses actually like actively hide their nakedness from each other, or even not, not necessarily their physical nakedness, but even just hide like the issues that are going on in their lives or their fears or their guilt or their concerns. 
What would you say about that relationship? You'd say there was a break in trust, right? Something's wrong. There's some insecurity in that relationship. There's some doubt that's been introduced. There's been a breakdown in trust. And I think that a breakdown in trust is precisely the problem at the heart of Genesis 3. This is why their nakedness is suddenly a problem, because the trust is gone. So the snake fed them this line. It's interesting. He he didn't get them to question whether God existed, right? He got them to question whether God was good, whether God was trustworthy, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, because they were literally surrounded by very goodness. (laughs) And yet somehow they came to fear that they were missing out, that they they weren't sure that one of God's gifts, they weren't sure that the boundary around that tree, they weren't sure it was really a good gift. The trust was gone. And when the trust was gone, being naked and vulnerable and so completely known was no longer a good thing. It was a threat. And they suddenly felt like they needed to hide. And I would argue that we humans have been hiding ever since. So I think of this with social media. Um, I think our social media habits are, are practically like a master's class in hiding who we are. Um... What is so appealing about social media is that it feels so open, like we're so connected, like it's so intimate. It feels like we're all just being real with each other, right? Look at these intimate pictures of my life and and look at these raw thoughts going through my mind. But often I think that being real with each other is like the furthest thing from what's happening on social media. It's an illusion. You see, social media, what it does is it it trains us to hunt for likes. It it reinforces that deep human desire we have to be liked, to be followed. And it puts us in this instant feedback loop, right? So once we've posted something, we cannot wait to see who liked it and what they said about it. And, and, And the social network is happy to oblige with that feedback loop. Right? We live... We live for the like, right? And social media gives us this constant feedback so that we can always get another one. They help us to put on our mask, and then they help us perfect the mask. And then our social media self just drifts further and further from our real self. And in a way, I think that's the real problem. Social media encourages us to believe that we cannot be both truly open, truly who we are, and truly loved. It encourages us to be more calculating, to hide this, to to spin that. We cannot be our raw selves and get likes. We have to put on a mask. And make no mistake, even our our 9- and 10-year-olds know what kinds of masks get the most likes. We are trained to present a certain version of ourselves and often that version, has, it has the trappings of honesty. Because that, that gets likes when it seems like it's honest. It has the feel of true confession. But often our so-called honest posts or our true online confessions, they're just as calculated as anything else we post. They just become another way to get likes. 
And the honest truth is, we'll take the likes. Even though we know it is often a mask that people are really liking, in this life, we'll take it. Now, I imagine that our world today would say that the solution to this problem is that we just need to be more comfortable with our nakedness. Our world would say something like, you, need, you just need to be you. Uh, you need to stop apologizing for who you are. You need to be true to yourself and, and not care what other people think of you. By the way, I bet if you posted any of those lines, you'd get a lot of likes. little hint. And there's a sense in which that's true, right? A lot of the things that we do try to conceal, that's just our insecurity. That's the only reason to conceal it. But as I thought about it this week, it occurred to me that actually, if we're honest, sometimes there's good reasons to cover things up. What I mean is, like, there's some stuff in our lives that probably shouldn't just all hang out. I can just speak for myself, but in my life, in my heart, I have had and still have some pretty dark places. Now we can use euphemisms for that. We can talk about how, you know, well, you know, I'm a work in progress, you know, or, uh, you know, I'm on the journey. But what we say in this community is we say that I'm a sinner, right? And some of my sin is really ugly. It's not just like endearing foibles, right? Like, oh, I'm so addicted to that new show. And you're like, oh, Sean, me too. Our pastor's so relatable. Like, like, like. (laughs) If you had access to my heart all the time, you wouldn't be like, oh, Sean. You'd be like, oh, Sean. That's the nature of of the real sin in every human heart. It's not flattering. Uh, It doesn't look good on you. It doesn't look good on me. It's not getting any likes. This This is why I don't want you to take the advice of our culture just wholesale. I don't want you to be who you truly are when part of who you truly are is a sinner. Right? And, and, and I don't want you to stop apologizing for who you are if there's stuff you actually need to apologize for. I want something better. I want a way to be real and to be loved. And that's where Genesis 3 gives us, I think, an incredibly hopeful image. So Adam and Eve try to cover up their nakedness. Um, their shame, their baggage. But they're not very good at it, right? Um, They use fig leaves for clothes, really. Um, They hid from God, okay? They hid from God behind a tree, right? I mean, that hiding hiding behind a tree doesn't fool my two-year-old, right? Their attempts to cover themselves up are pathetic. But God steps in anyway first thing he does is he, he comes to the garden and he calls for them. That's a gift right there. That's a gift. That's grace. He knew what they had done, but he calls for them anyway. And then look what he does in verse 21. 
So God has just he's cursed the snake and then he's laid out the consequences of their sin. He doesn't sugarcoat it. It's bad. But then look at verse 21. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and, and his wife and he clothed them. And you see what God's doing. He's covering them. But notice something very important. What does God make the clothes out of? Cotton, hemp, leaves, branches. It's animal skins, right? So here's a question for you. To get an animal skin to make clothes, what needs to happen to the animal? It needs to die, right? You catch that? So an animal needed to die for Adam and Eve's sin to be covered. Now, if you know the rest of your Bible, some alarm bells should be going off right now. Okay? So later in the Bible, God gave His people this system whereby they could come to Him. Uh, basically, they could come to Him and be totally vulnerable. Not, not like social media vulnerable. They were free to name every sin they'd committed, to share their, their deepest, darkest, most shameful parts of themselves, to face all that ugliness... And then, incredibly, to leave confident that they were forgiven, accepted, and loved by a God who knew them. It was the sacrificial system. And the way it worked is you confessed your sin and and your darkest parts to God, and then you killed an animal. And that animal died, and that animal's blood was shed to cover up your shame. Now, this was not getting off easy, all right? You had to see that animal die. You had to hear that animal die. You had to know that that animal died because of you. I mean, there's no mistaking in this system. Your sin is costly. But in God's system, you don't have to hide anymore. God says, go ahead. Go ahead and stare your sin in the face. You know, AA says, I think it's step four. It says, uh, take a searching and fearless moral inventory of your life. Take a searching and fearless moral inventory of your life. But then God says, trust that the blood can do what seemed impossible. Trust that the blood can cover for you. Even for you. Now, I'm not sure... What will turn up when you do a searching and fearless moral inventory of your life? Uh, when I've done it, it's been painful. It's been hard. Um, I did not get off easy. But what I found was that God has made a way so that I didn't have to hide anymore. I didn't have to pretend See, just as God came to Adam and Eve after they sinned, just as he found them, he finds us. While we were still sinners. We read it earlier in the, in the prayer of confession. While we were still sinners, He comes to us. He's not abandoned us. And then He spills blood to cover up our sin. He takes a life, but not an animal's life, right? He takes His own life. God Himself dies for us. His blood covers our sin. Which means there's no more reason to hide. You can go ahead and you can take that searching and fearless moral inventory of your life and then look to the cross and know 
that the blood has been spilled and the price has been paid. The worst we have ever done or could ever do is covered. And so now we can leave this place confident that we are forgiven, accepted, and loved by a God who is not fooled, but by a God who knows us completely. Let's pray together. Lord, as you promise in your word, you will restore this creation to paradise uh, one day. And we long for that day. We we look very much forward to that when we will not have to experience the horrors of, of war and premature death and sorrow and grief. But Lord, we pray that you would begin that, that project of restoring to that original goodness. We pray that you would begin that with us. That you would give us a way to deal with the sin that we have contributed to unparadising this paradise. That you could show yourself as the God who can know us for all of our good, but also especially all of our bad, and find a way to accept and forgive and love us anyway. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.